Hello and welcome to Sports Management 101. In this episode, we're going to be speaking to sports historian Andy Mitchell about the world's very first football club. The very first football club in the world is often credited as being Sheffield FC, founded in 1857. But in actual fact, the world's very first club dedicated to football of any code dates back to 1824, when John Hope established what he simply called the Football Club in a field just outside Edinburgh. No other contemporary football clubs are known to have existed for at least another 20 years. John Hutchinson and Andy Mitchell have researched the definitive history of this groundbreaking club and show how it had an incredible influence on the long-term development of football. Using archive material, they describe how the game was played, who the players were and what motivated them. They have uncovered a fascinating picture of sport and society in the city of Edinburgh, the people who lived in it and their social networks. I'm delighted that we have Andy Mitchell, one of those authors, here to talk us through what was involved in writing this book. Okay, so thank you so much, Andy, for, for joining us today. Um, I want to try and explore as much as we can about um, about your book and the writing that you've done about um, John Hope. But I suppose before we get into that, you know, this is not the only piece of work that you've done around Scottish sporting history or, or Scottish footballing history. So I wondered if you could give us a bit of a background, A, to your professional life before writing, but also what, what you've written in, in this kind of realm before. Yeah, I, I've kind of brought together professional and personal interest. Um, in, a, in a professional sense, I, when I graduated from university, I went straight into journalism. I got a job with the Scotsman um, and I've spent almost my entire career in the media in various different guises. Um, but at the same time, I had a really abiding interest in football. I'd always been a football fan. Um, I never had the fortune to be a, a football reporter, but my big break was um, just before I turned 40, uh, I got a job with the Scottish Football Association as, uh, as a press officer, uh, just in time for the 1998 World Cup. And uh, that kind of launched me on a, a, a great, roller coaster of fun working in football as a football fan and uh, not many people get to do that so um, I'd, I'd worked in football ever since then with uh, the SFA and then uh, as a freelance with uh, UEFA for many years always working on the media side of things um, either as head of communications at the SFA or, or as, a, as a media officer which is more as an organizational with uh, UEFA uh, and it gave me some fabulous experiences, both with the Scotland team and going to uh, the Euros three times, uh, with UEFA, all sorts of Champions League matches around Europe. Um, so I've, I've seen football from the inside, but at the same time, I had this abiding interest in football history and uh, have now contributed to five books on football. Uh, with a particular interest in the uh, the 19th century and, and the origins of football. Yes, and so this, the, the 1824 book, um, focuses specifically on on uh, the world's very first football club, um, which was created by John Hope. And I wondered if you could perhaps give us a bit of a, an insight into what your motivate or how that how the opportunity to write the book with John Hutchinson came about and what your kind of key motivations were in, in wanting to do that. Well, I'd known John for many, many years. Uh, he himself had, had written a book about the, the early days of football uh, back in the 1980s. 
um, and I'd met him at that time. Um, there was even a period where I worked for him at the Scottish Tourist Board when uh, he was a publications manager and I was a, a, an up and coming young editor. So um, we'd known each other for many, many years and he had really done a lot of research into to John Hope and his club. Um, but it sort of stumbled to get the, the, the big, big picture going. Um, and therefore it was a, an ideal opportunity to combine and produce the definitive story of the, uh, the first football club. So you, um, you've got together, you, you've obviously wrote this, but what I, I suppose I'm interested in, I suppose from an academic perspective is the methodology involved in, in, in what it takes to do this kind of research that so you mentioned in the book, there's a, there's a piece you write by uh, uh, Linton Strachey in his uh, eminent mm. Victorians. He says, historical research was a little like tossing a bucket into, into the sea to find out what comes up. And, and you say, now we have the internet. It's not, it's not just a matter of chucking a bucket into the sea it's now an ocean and so I'm just interested in that process really how did you go about researching the book I mean was it very laborious what where did you have to go to get all of your data um it, it was certainly very painstaking because there's so much material to go through you have to go back to the the reason we know about John Hope's football club um is that John Hope was a hoarder he kept everything every bit of paper in his life. Um, so while we say it's the first football club, it's the first football club that we know of, because there could be others which were, were simply not recorded. Um, and for example, the, the Hope Club was never uh, mentioned in the press at the time. Uh, there was no football reports in the end evening news in the 1820s or the Scotsman or anything like that. Um, but because Hope kept everything, um, he was he was unmarried. He was a lawyer, so he had the facilities to to just put everything in boxes. And his entire archive is now at the National Records of Scotland in Edinburgh. And there are over two hundred boxes of his papers. Um, now that is a daunting prospect to any kind of researcher. And John Hodgson had started to go through them all and find a few things, as had one or two other researchers. But the best one in the world, you cannot go through 200 boxes of legal papers and, and so on and expect to really come up with any results uh, before you go grow old and grey. Um, but the national records have now catalogued all the boxes, um, some more detailed than others. And therefore that made it far easier to pinpoint what was necessary They've also digitized a lot of the more interesting stuff. So you can actually print off or get online pictures of um, some of the really important papers from a football perspective. So that um, digital process made the research far, far more uh, doable. And at the same time, the digitization of books, of newspapers, of all sorts of other historical papers meant that you could delve around what else was going on at that time and, and, and dig out reports about uh, the, the people who were involved, the, um, the social structure of Edinburgh at the time, uh, any direction you wanted really. And, and, and as anybody who's a subscriber to the British Newspaper Archive will tell you, once you start digging, there is a vast amount of stuff you can find now 
uh, no matter what your interest. So um, from a research perspective, if you followed Lytton Strachey's dictum 30, 40 years ago, all you could do was visit libraries and hope you struck lucky or delve through boxes. Whereas now you can sit at your desk and whilst you, you can't discount the visits to the libraries and the archives, but knowing what is out there has become far, far easier and more manageable than it ever was at any time before. And it will continue to get more manageable as more and more material goes online. So that's indicative of, of how this kind of research can be undertaken. Um, it, and I find this in so many different fields that you can discover things that have been forgotten or misinterpreted over the years. And at last you can come up with the proof of how things really were, who people really were, uh, and that was never possible before. So that's how, how we approach things. And just, uh, I suppose, how long did it take you to, to research the book and compile it? What was that process? What did that process look like for you? I, I would say a couple of years, so fairly intensive research and writing. Um, the thing about John Hope is he wasn't just a football person. He went off on so many different tangents as, a, as a, an Edinburgh town councillor, uh, as a religious evangelical, uh, as a lawyer, uh, as a, a man in Edinburgh society uh, with very good connections. Uh, and then, of course, the football too. So um, you couldn't just focus on this tunnel vision of let's see what the football club did. You had to look at all the other aspects of his life and, and what influences he had. Um, so it was fascinating, but it took a long time. And uh, one aspect of that was, for example, looking at all the members of the football club, who they all were, 300 odd people, and identifying as many of those as possible so that again, you could get this bigger picture of what kind of people played football, wanted to take part in football, um, and whether they had links to uh, the modern game, uh, and so on and so forth. So um, it went off on a lot of tangents, and it was a question of bringing all those back together to create one narrative. So let's look a little bit at uh, the football club itself. Um, so as you as you say, we don't know perhaps if there was a, other football clubs before it, but this is the first one that we have kind of a recorded yeah. document of, I guess. Um, and whilst that was fairly new in itself, or very new in itself, um, Edinburgh was a kind of a hotspot for sporting innovation, wasn't it? There wasn't, you know, this was a part of lots of other things that were happening within Edinburgh at the time. Yeah, and, and we took some time to look at that bigger picture. Uh, and I have to say, I, I was quite surprised at how widespread sport was uh, in Edinburgh for at least a century before John Hope came along and people started playing football. Uh, and Edinburgh in particular can, can lay claim to all sorts of sporting firsts in, uh, in creating uh, the first archery club. Uh, the, then you've got uh, golf starting in Edinburgh. You've got bowls uh, and other sports, curling and um, I, I forget which others. There was a gymnastics club at Edinburgh University in the 1770s. Um, although very little is known about it. So th there was sport taking place 
But the nature of sport changed around about the 1820s, um, which is a, a, a kind of a, a moot point as to why people would, would start playing football at that point or organizing football at that point. Because up to then, if you look at any, any of the games that uh, were played, they're not that energetic. I mean, golfers might disagree, but um, golf, um, bowls, archery, um, e even games like, like um, court tennis, or um, I, I don't know what, what else, coits, were all sort of target games where you didn't move a great deal uh, and your, your job was basically to hit an object at a target, whether it's getting a golf ball in a hole or an arrow in a, in a, in a, in a target. And they, they were quite suited to slightly older gentlemen, because it was nearly all men, um, who had the leisure and the money to participate in these sports. Um, the, more, the, the more active sports that were, were around at that time tended to involve animals such as horse racing or hunting uh, or cockfighting, whatever. So you've got animals to do the, the hard work. Or, and if, if humans were involved, there tend to be things like boxing, where you would pay uh, people to punch somebody else, but you wouldn't, as a gentleman, you wouldn't get involved yourself at that point. This is long before Queensbury rules and it was done for betting. So at that point, none of the middle classes would really indulge in energetic sport. In the 1820s, that, there was a significant shift as people started to take part in more athletic pursuits. That's when you get the first um, athletic races. You get the first rowing races and regattas. Um, and that's indicative of why football perhaps started to go, because it, it, it was at long last socially acceptable for a middle-class gentleman or young man to actually take part in an energetic exercise. Um, so if you look at that bigger picture, you can see a definite shift in the way people uh, undertook leisure activity and, and became more energetic. So. In terms of setting up a football club, um, children played football at school, and that's abundantly clear in Edinburgh at the Royal High School. You have Walter Scott, who was um, a contemporary of John Hope's father, um, talking about playing football in the, in the school yards uh, as a, in his boyhood. Uh, and it was, it's evident that at schools, and no doubt other schools around the country, boys played football, but when they became so respectable adults or students, that activity stopped. Uh, and John Hope's initiative was to take that schoolyard activity and move it into adulthood, which, as far as you know, had never been done before. So that's the kind of background to a football club being started. And it was innovative, but it was in line with all the other innovations that had happened in sport in Edinburgh in the century or so before that. And so so you have this sort of, I suppose, barrier of um, that this has never really been done before. So, um, you know, as you mentioned, 
taking it from from school to adulthood that's a, a barrier in itself and this way the expectations of what a gentleman should and shouldn't do at that that time what were some of the other barriers that he would have faced in trying to establish something like a, a football club as we know it today um the, the biggest problem was finding somewhere to play um because there were no sports grounds as such um up to that point in edinburgh you had brunsfield links and leith links which are used by the golfers and they weren't the nice flat or undulating areas you know now they were very hilly they hadn't been landscaped um it was quite challenging playing golf at that time and the area around about that was very limited so certainly not enough for the footballers to come in and depose the golfers who may well have been their dads or their employers so you couldn't use that ground um if you look at the other big sporting areas around edinburgh you had the the horse racing courses but again they were mainly done on places like leith sands or mosselburgh sands not ideal for football and a long way out of town so hope had to find a field and edinburgh was surrounded by um, grazing land for the cows to provide all the milk so if you wanted a field you had to not only hire the field but you had to pay a farmer for that privilege and compensate him for not having cows on it to graze um, and that, that's why they started playing in winter because there was less grazing in the winter because the grass isn't growing and it's noticeable later on in the football club's life when they played in the summertime, it was far more expensive because that was when the grass was growing. And if you trampled the grass down, the cows couldn't eat it. So you had to get all the feed from elsewhere. So it, it was almost acceptable to, to rent a field in the winter months because you weren't really displacing the, the livestock too much. And uh, summer months were far more challenging and, and more expensive. So anyway, the, the, the first place they had to find was a field um, he, he found a field in uh, Dalry, not far from Gorgie in, in, in Edinburgh, and, and he and his pals traipsed out there in, in December 1824 and, and started kicking the ball about. And, and the other thing they had to do was get all the equipment, because you couldn't just go to a sports shop. You had to uh, actually go to uh, a glover or a leather maker to create a leather casing for a ball. You knew how to make a ball, but it was still quite expensive. And then to make that ball bounce, you had to put a bladder inside it. Uh, so they went down to the butchers and bought a supply of pig's bladders. Um, it was quite complicated. I mean, but they were, uh, I suppose, uh, enthusiastic enough to, to give it a go. Um, and then beyond that, the the other expenses and necessities they, they uh, needed something to blow up the ball uh, and the the best solution for that was actually to hire a boy at six months an afternoon to to blow up these foul pig bladders and, and tie the knot rather than get involved themselves uh, and they needed um, goalposts even in those days uh, they called them hail sticks but they were right quite clearly uh, posts to be put in the ground to, to act as a goal. So 
you, you can abstract from that that the, the game that they wanted to play did have goals at either end uh, and it was a competitive game. It wasn't just aimlessly kicking a ball about. Um, but having overcome all of these challenges, once they got going, there seemed to be no stopping them. And it went on for many years uh, on those lines. And he was just 17 at the time as well, which is probably quite an important thing mm -hmm. to, to mention is it so quite a large sort of leadership aspect well i mean so much of this story does pivot on on john hope doesn't it so what yeah. what do we what did what did you discover about him as a as an individual and his life in researching this book he, he, he was i suppose hyperactive is uh, perhaps a good word to describe him um he, he was rel relentless in everything he did um, which is great when you're getting something going. It's not so great when um, nobody else gets a look in. Um, and of course, that had it, implications for the football club. Um, but, but John Hope himself, when he was 17, so he's not long out of school, he'd gone to Edinburgh University um, and was very clearly active and, and no doubt found like-minded souls who also wanted to be active and, and, and keep the game going. Um, but he was certainly dedicated from the very start. He wrote down everything in his little membership books, which are still in the national records. So you can see December 1824, one and sixpence for um, the hire of the pitch and for um, buying a bladder and so on. And it's detailed week by week uh, what the expenses were, uh, who the members of the club were and how much they paid for their membership. He wrote everything down. And, and if you think about the implications of that, you, you can't say the same for um, Manchester United or Rangers or, or the vast majority of even the, the great institutions of, of, in football that we know today. But if you look for John Hope's Club, it's all written down, every single detail. Um, so that's the kind of guy he was. He, 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 he I suppose he had the legal brain not all the lawyers are like that, thankfully, but he wanted to record everything, every detail, and he kept it. Now, I haven't kept all my stuff from when I was 17, thankfully, but he did, and he filed it away, and it's still there for posterity nearly 200 years later. Mm -hmm. And what was his sort of main motivation? Obviously, you say he's very, very active, and, and later in life, he was involved in all sorts of different things, wasn't he, which I'm sure we'll come to, but... What was his main real motivation for starting up a, a football club? I can't answer that because he, although he kept all the, the minutiae of the details, he never wrote down his own memoirs and explained why he did certain things. Um, I, I suppose that's a great paradox of, of John Hope in that you have to second guess his motivation for a lot of things um, and, and what other people have, have written about him. Um, I, I, th I think he was just a control freak who wanted to do everything. Um, and if there was going to be a football club, he was going to organise it. Um, but that, that's why I say it's the only the first club that we know of, because there could have been all sorts of other organisations going on, especially among students, uh, which came and went. They never wrote anything down. They just met in the pub of a of an evening said, why don't we all kick a barn to football tomorrow? 
And by the way, we all need to chip in for a ball and a, a place to play. You wouldn't write it down. Um, if you're going to play five sides next week, you might need uh, on the Meadows, for example, in Edinburgh. You wouldn't need to write all that down. You just go out and do it. Um, so there's always this suspicion that in the background, other people were doing the same thing around the same time. And the big difference is that John Hope recorded it and uh, wrote it all down for posterity. Mm -hmm. But he wasn't, um, he wasn't without his own controversies as an individual either, was he? I mean, he was quite... Uh, um... Uh, his involvement in religion was was fairly full on, shall we say? I mean, the, yes. nowadays we probably wouldn't accept it, but I suppose it's important to keep in context of the time, wasn't it? Well, yes, and and that is quite a challenge when you're trying to present him as the great innovator. Um, thankfully, the the religious awakenings, as his biographer described it, didn't happen until the mid 1830s. Um, so when he was pushing 30 himself, um, he, he started to get more involved in that um, and very quickly developed into a, an outright bigot. And there's no other way to describe him. Um, there's no particular indication that affected the football club, except that by the time he was that age, he was losing interest in the football club and uh, was moving on to other things as he grew a bit older. Um, but yeah, he, he's undoubtedly controversial. He was, un he was controversial in his lifetime, but also retrospectively looking back, you think, oh God, how, how could a guy like that make any kind of um, living? And, and the reason he was able to survive and thrive was that because he was incredibly wealthy. He inherited, as the eldest son, he inherited his father's estate and two rich uncles. So he had a fabulous financial backing. Uh, he never married, so he had no family or kids to look after. He was a lawyer, and even then lawyers made a lot of money, charged a lot of money. Um, so he was able to do what he liked. And um, from what I can see, that if you tried to argue with him, you didn't get very far. So uh, he, he was very sure of himself and his, his ideas. and, and um, some people went along with him. He had his acolytes who were also bigots and, and were happy to, to follow on because it was in their interest, uh, whether it's religion, whether it was anti-drink, the temperance movement, uh, or, or, or all sorts of other fields. He, he was a determined and very single-minded throughout his life. You, you mentioned the anti-drink thing there, and, and at one point in the book, you do talk about this club being quite different from the other clubs we spoke about in Edinburgh at the time, you know, the archery club, the gymnastics, because they all focused around that kind of social aspect that is still yeah. fairly present today. I imagine a lot of kind of grassroots amateur sports clubs, but this club was not focused on that. It was very much more about the actual activity itself, wasn't it? It, it seems to be, yes. I mean, I, I generally, they played football, uh, once or twice a week, so very regularly. Um, th there's no record in the Hope Archive of any kind of social activities. And there's just one small hint, which was actually discovered the year after the book came out. Uh, there was a newspaper report in 1828 of uh, a football club having a convivial night out in Stockbridge. And 
I'm still debating to this day with, with other historians, is this John Hope's football club or is it some other football club? Because there are no uh, distinct clues as to say who it was. It sounds like it probably was his lot, um, but it could have been another bunch of guys. We just don't know. Um, so you mentioned that, that, that there was this kind of the schoolboy aspect moving into, as they moved into sort of adulthood, that he was bringing with him his peers, that he was bringing with him into this club. But what what, what do we, you, you talk about there was as, as many as 300 members over the course mm -hmm. of, of the club's sort of lifespan. Um, but what do we know about some of those members and, you know, what was their kind of um, involvement in the club? Well, the vast majority were middle-class Edinburgh boys who had been at one of the leading schools, at either the Royal High School or the Edinburgh Academy. Um, the majority of the members over the years were lawyers. Um, a lot of the other ones went on, like John Hope, to become righteous and signet. Um, and of the rest, I mean, they, they tend to follow the professions, whether they're doctors or military people or uh, accountants or whatever. So that was the template for the great majority of them. But it's it's almost at the fringes that you find the more interesting people, um, those who came to Edinburgh from elsewhere, but still joined a football club. So if you've got somebody who, who'd come to Edinburgh University from Yorkshire, but wanted to join a football club, does that say that they play football at home and thought, great, there's a football club here, let's join. Because it's not the kind of thing you would suddenly come to Edinburgh and think, yeah, football, that sounds interesting. Um, and there's a few sort of outside characters who come to Edinburgh and almost immediately join the football club. And you kind of wonder, what's their background? Um, it, it's very hard to say why that would have happened. But as I say, the vast majority were very solidly Edinburgh, Newtown, middle-class professional men uh, at the start of their careers. Some, some are still at school when they, uh, when they joined the club, some had left school, some are in their early 20s. Um, but then as now football is a, is a young man's game, and by the time you got to 30, you had um, professional responsibilities, you maybe had families, you had other things to get on with, so uh, they, they drifted away. And, and some obviously didn't really enjoy it, they joined for one year, perhaps thinking this would be fun. Um, others stayed for quite a few years and, and, and carried on um, as part of their regular exercise. So there's a bit of variety there, but, but, but essentially the, the, the core membership was very similar in, in their background. Um, I wanted to ask you about the the rules that the club wrote down, essentially, and and I mean, is it your understanding that these were essentially the first ever rules that were, were written down in any code yes. of football? Yes, they are by, by quite a long way. Uh, so that was about 1833. Um, they're just written on a on a scrap of paper. Uh, if they were printed, we, we we don't know that, but they're certainly in John Hope's handwriting. Um, just some very basic tenets of how to play football, uh, but making it quite clear that it was a kicking game, not a handling game, that uh, excessive rough play was not to be permitted. Um, 
um, really just laying out some, I suppose, basic principles of how to play football, which were echoed later on in the, in the century, um, not only when John Hope had a, a playground in the 1850s, but also in, in the Sheffield and the Cambridge laws and the London laws that were written down. Um, so you can definitely tell that this was uh, an association football type of game rather than a rugby football handling game. Um, the, the interesting point is when he wrote these down, because this is nine years after the club was started, and, and there's two schools of thought in that, um, because this is round about the time that numbers in the club started dwindling. So did, did he um, write down the rules in response to the numbers dwindling in an effort to try and encourage more people to join? Or did his writing down the rules um, actually um, lead to people leaving? Right. Because perhaps they didn't like being dictated to. Um, it's one of these big questions as to uh, the, the wherefore of, of writing down the rules. But at the end of the day, we have to be happy with the fact that they are written down and, and they are quite informative. And, and what you can infer from them is that this, this is a very definitely the kind of game we now know as association football. And in terms of the kind of lifespan, it, it was around for is it 12, 13 years that it was kind of active for before it was sort of wound up essentially? Well, the, the full records run for 12 years, but the club itself obviously continued beyond that. Um, it wasn't until 1841, so that's 17 years after it was founded, um, that we have definitive uh, written evidence that, that that's it. Uh, no longer operating uh, because there was somebody who'd come to Edinburgh and wrote a letter to Hope asking if he could join his club but on what terms and got the response sorry we're not actually operating anymore and this, this was Hope um, in, in his latter years with, with the club he, he was plainly trying to get somebody else to take it over and, and it's this fundamental issue that uh, as football clubs find to this day, but when somebody is in total control and then step aside, it's very hard to fill that vacuum. Um, you've seen it with owners of football clubs. When they, when they leave, uh, the club just plummets. When managers leave, when, when Fergie left Man United, uh, there's a hole there, which is only even now, 10 years later, just starting to be filled again. Um, and, and when John Hope left, he, because he was such a control freak, he ran every aspect of that club. And I think he found it very hard to let go, but also others found it very hard to step in because they could see him looking over their shoulder. Um, so I think that's very much the reason why the club foundered uh, and, and didn't keep going. Um, there are probably other factors too, because of the founding membership generally was getting older. Um, fashions change. There were a lot. There were other activities that people could take part in around that time. Um, who knows? It, it, there's a multitude of factors, um, but ultimately the, the, the club didn't survive. And in a way, that comes back to your original premise about 
um, is this the oldest football club? Uh, and no, it's not the oldest club, it's the first club. But um, the, the oldest surviving club now is, is Sheffield FC from 1857. Um, and and it's, I suppose you could say that's semantics, whether it's oldest or first, but I, I make a clear distinction between the two. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, so the club, yeah, it was once it was, it was wound up, that wasn't really the end of it. I mean, it's historic in the fact that it's the first, um, but the, the members also had a lot of involvement post their involvement in the club, didn't they? In the, in the development of sport within, within Edinburgh and it sort of helped them, I suppose, lay claim to a number of football world firsts as well, didn't it? Well, yes, uh, and some of those involving John Hope as well. Um, but you can look at um, almost every decade through the 19th century, there was some kind of football happening. Um, the next one was 1851 in Edinburgh, when you had a university football club playing against the 93rd Highlanders who were garrisoned at the castle. And they, they played a match at, uh, uh, in, in Hollywood Park. Uh, and the losers paid for a silver medal, which is beautifully engraved with people kicking a ball about. Um, and that still survives. It's in the Argyle and Sutherland Highlanders Museum. So that's the oldest known football trophy in the world because it was presented to the winners of a match. Um, three years after that, there was a kind of crucial year in, in sporting history in, in, in Edinburgh in 1854. Um, down in Rayburn Place, John Hope set up a sports ground where, on, on what is now the Grange Cricket Club, uh, where he encouraged a range of activities, but also including football, and wrote down, published a set of rules for that kind of football. Again, it's clearly a kicking game. Uh, the same week that that sports ground opened, uh, in, the, in the adjacent field, the Edinburgh Academy football ground opened. And the code of football that they adopted was the handling game. I mean, it's a long story, but that came via people who had the rugby rules in their pocket. So you had side by side two sports grounds in Edinburgh in 1854, one playing the kicking game, one playing the handling game. And to cut a long story short, the handling game won, which is why rugby became so well established in Edinburgh in the 1850s, 1860s. And, and the football didn't get a look in until the founding of Hibs and Hearts and other clubs in the 1870s. Um, moving on from there with, with, with John Hope and, and, his, um, and his club members, um, in the 1870s, uh, John Hope was the leader of the 3rd Edinburgh Rifle Volunteers, his volunteer regiment, he was the colonel, and he encouraged the men to set up a football club in 1874. They, they were the very first football club to be formed in Edinburgh. And he, he kicked off their first match. So there in 1874, it's John Hope kicking a football. Um, when they won the very first Edinburgh FA Cup in 1876, the cup wasn't presented to the captain of the team, it was presented to John Hope. Um, 
And that club later kind of transmogrified into St Bernard's FC, who went on to win the Scottish Cup in 1895. So there's that thread throughout the entire century of John Hope's involvement in football um, coming and going, but still having a, a vivid influence throughout his whole life. And as for the other members of his original football club, if you believe that fathers pass on skills to their son, um, in the very first rugby international, you had uh, a son of a football club member. In the very first football international, you had the son of a football club member. Um, so again, there are obvious generational jumps from father to son of people being brought up in a football tradition and carrying it on to become accomplished sportsmen in what you might define as the modern era, the codified era. Uh, so I think it's fair to say that the influence of John Hope's football club carried on long, long after the club itself was wound up because these guys must have influenced their sons into playing football, must have encouraged them. Uh, and therefore these guys were the pioneers of the modern game. And um, yeah, so they've obviously left a huge, huge legacy for, yeah. for the kind of development of, of, of modern football. And, 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 and as we know, football today, um, not only John Hope, but some of those members that were, were involved in some of those other um, sort of world firsts and developments. But why do you think that you mentioned earlier, Sheffield FC is, is sort of uh, acknowledged as being the, the, the oldest club still standing or still still mm. um, running um why is it that we don't know more about this club or why is it that, that sheffield is is often why do you think that it, sheffield fc is often sort of referred to as being the world's oldest club well uh, a lot a lot of that comes down to the fact that sheffield is still in existence so they've got an active committee and supporters and a very active chairman who promote them as you'd expect them to do uh, as the world's first. In fact, their club crest actually has the, word, the words, the world's first football club embedded in the crest. And I've had a lot of arguments with people from Sheffield over the years and say, you can't say the first. And some of them agree with me, uh, some don't. Um, and, and you also have to think that even for the first 20 years of their existence, Sheffield Football Club were not actually playing association football, they were playing Sheffield Rules football. So that's a kind of moot distinction. But they, they are the oldest existing football club, whereas John Hope was the, the, the first ever to be formed. Um, but a lot of it comes down to, to marketing, that being in existence and, and having active support, uh, they can continue to t tell their story um, to anyone who will listen. Uh, and there's a, a lot of uh, support for that in the city of Sheffield. Good luck to them. For the John Hope story, yeah, you're right, it isn't well enough known, but it's a lot better known than it was 10 years ago because we've published the book. And the next big opportunity um, is that next year is the bicentenary of club being formed. Now we've just had a lot of big anniversaries in football, Scottish FA 150, um, Scottish Rugby 150, other clubs have celebrated 150s, and nobody's had a 200 anniversary yet. Mm -hmm. So um, one thing that 
John Hutchinson and myself will be working on next year is to try and highlight the fact that here is an incredibly important anniversary, 200 years since the world's first football club was founded in Edinburgh, in Scotland. Um, and hopefully the media, the broadcasters, the documentary makers will be inspired by that story and, and will take it on. Um, it is a hard sell sometimes, but um, beyond the, the basic story, but, but I think we've got a good story to tell. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. Um, and congratulations for all your work on it. As I said, it's, you know, it's a, it's a thoroughly enjoyable read. Um, I just want to, one last question, I guess, is, is really around some of the other stuff that you've done uh, in, in this kind of field. As we mentioned at the start, you've written a number of books now around the kind of Mm -hmm. um the history of football um but you also have done some sort of consulting for for netflix as well haven't you can you tell us a little bit about what your involvement was with um, the english game that was uh broadcast uh, i think it was 2020 was it yeah it, it, it was broadcast just a month after lockdown so uh, there was lots of people who had nothing better to do than, than watch football um i i had the lucky advantage that the the, the story is about the the first professionals to come down from Scotland, Fergie Suter and Jimmy Love, to play for Darwin uh, in the English FA Cup in 1878. And they came up against uh, the old Etonians of Arthur Kinnaird. And my first book was a biography of Arthur Kinnaird. And a few years ago, I really dug into the story of um, Fergie Suter and Jimmy Love. Jimmy Love had never been identified before. I managed to track down who he was and what his, his story was. So I published all of that. So when Netflix decided to commission this screenplay of this great clash and, um, and call it the English game, but it should really be this, the Scottish game in England, um, they, they got in touch and said, could I help out and advise on, on some of the background to what was going on, um, which was great fun. Um, I, I, I didn't write the script, which was very much dramatized. Some people didn't like that. I, I, I think it's great. It's, it's a fascinating story. But I was able to advise on, on arcane details, like uh, how a football pitch was laid out, what the umpires might wear, what the crowd might shout, um, and lots of details like that. Um, to, to try and sort of give it as much authenticity as possible, but without uh, sort of undermining their, their dramatic story, which they told. And the, the reaction to that has been fabulous because um, I've got a blog on my website and the, the most popular story I've written in, in 10 years by far is uh, who was Jimmy Love and who, who, who was Fergus Suter just describing how they came from Partick to Darwin. Uh, and I've had comments and, and messages from people around the world who've seen this on Netflix and are just utterly gobsmacked by it. So by dramatizing that, I, I think Netflix have done a fantastic service in, in helping to, to publicize the story of, of early football. Um, I would love to see episodes two, three, four, or more series about whether it's John Hope or, or, or other great pioneers in football. Um, it may yet happen, but uh, I think it was a great starter to, to get involved in that. And uh, I, I'm just delighted to have been a part of it. 
That's great. Well, I um, would just like to thank you very much for your time, Andy, and, and oh, thank you for joining us and, and sharing your insight in, into the world's first football club. And uh, yeah, good luck for, for whatever comes next. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure.